Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I'd like to read from the pen of Calvin Miller, the late Calvin Miller, pastor, professor, distinguished writer in residence at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. Here's what Miller wrote. I remember the first time in school when Mrs. Dirksen, my first grade teacher, asked me what my name was. I knew that. And then she asked me what my mother's name was. I said to her, Mama. She said, No, that's not her name. I said, Yes, it is. We all call her that. No, she said, It's not Mama. It's something else. I said, No, it's not. She said, Look, Mama is what she is. Mama is what she does but mama is not her name. And I said, well, I'm sure you're wrong, but I'll ask her tonight. So when I got home from school that night, I was waiting for mama to walk in the room. I said, mama, do you have another name besides mama? She said, well, yes, son. My name is Ethel. It sounded obscene, like she should have a twin sister named regular or unleaded. Then she said, and not only that, but I have a middle name too. It's Faye. And then she said, which was the most astounding revelation of all, Miller is my last name. It was the same name I had. I have never forgotten that sense of growing awareness that dawned on me. I'll be honest with you. I desire, no, that's too weak a word. I wish, no, that's definitely too weak a word. I I hope there's a robust Christian word, the Christian virtue of hope. I hope that for you and for me, there is that same dawning awareness of the fact that the name Emmanuel draws us in and make certain demands of us. That's right. That we would have the same kind of experience that Calvin Miller had. That dawning awareness of what it means to belong to Emmanuel, to belong to Jesus. We're on the last week of the Advent Sermon Series, The Great Exchange. We've been going week by week looking at what the Great Exchange means for us. When we come to that experience of Jesus stepping into our place so that we might step into His. Our lowest for His highest. Our sin for His righteousness. Our poverty for His riches. Our hopelessness for His hope. Now today we need to consider carefully, thoughtfully, with a dawning realization of what it means to be related to Him, We need to consider what it means to give back, to give what we've been given. 
We're going to go to Matthew 10 for those purposes, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Now, now I have to give a bit of the context before we read the passage, because this section of Matthew's Gospel is a section that moves. There's much happening. Now, you'll remember that in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, laying out those high, those at times impossibly high, ethical standards for his kingdom. But coming out of that, and moving into Matthew, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is knee-deep, sleeves rolled up, elbow-deep in ministry. There is some teaching that happens, but Matthew chapters 8 and 9 are filled with action and activity. It's there that he heals the mute and the deaf. It's there that he heals a sick girl, raises a sick girl from the dead, and heals a sick woman. It's there that, that he forgives and heals a paralyzed man. It's there that he casts out demons out of two demon-possessed men. Over and again, his ministry makes a profound difference in people's lives. Now, you can imagine when lives are getting changed, when ministry like that is unfolding, it's magnetic. People come, and they flocked to Jesus. In fact, one of the words that appears with some frequency in those chapters is the word crowds. There were crowds that came, that gathered around him. So much so that by the end of chapter 9, Matthew records Jesus as looking at the crowds, tossed about and saying about them, I have compassion on them. They're like sheep with no shepherd. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is white, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, pardon me, Lord of the harvest for more workers. It's right there that we're going to join the flow of the passage. Because as Jesus utters that, almost immediately it's answered. And the answer to the more workers prayer is the 12 disciples. So let's read. Matthew chapter 10, we start reading in verse 1. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is also called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. There's a very important reality that transpires at the beginning of this passage. This is the place that Jesus truly calls and names and commissions his apostles. I'm sure you're no, you noticed it, but just in case you missed it, Matthew 10 verse 1 says, Jesus called his 12 disciples. Greek word is mathetes, a learner, a student, a pupil. 
his 12 disciples. Then one verse later, Matthew 10, 2 says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. Greek word apostolos. One who is sent, an envoy, an emissary. So between verses 1 and 2, they move from being disciples to being apostles. He is about to send them on the first mission. And in doing so, he's going to give them a motto, a maxim, a mission, a mandate for that ministry. Now, the rest of chapter 10 will unpack all that that involves. Matthew's gospel is organized around five key discourses. Sermon on the Mount, we already mentioned, was the first one. This one in chapter 10, the mandate to his apostles is the second one. So there is much that is contained within this chapter. But that's not our focus. Just one line is our focus. I want to reread it. It's the line that comes right at the end of verse 8. Matthew 10, verse 8, the end of it says, Freely you have received, freely give. Six words in the English, four words in the Greek. Freely you have received, freely give. Contained within that is the entire gospel story. It tells us who we are so that a dawning realization can come to us as it did to Calvin Miller about the one to whom we are related. It tells us that, but it also tells us what we are to do. It begins with those words, freely you have received. You've been given. That's the great exchange, isn't it? We've spent four weeks talking about what we have received. We've received His highest. We've received His righteousness. We've received His riches. We've received His hope. Freely we have received. It always begins with that. The gospel always begins with God work, God's work. God always takes the first step, always takes the initiative. In fact, scholars call it the divine initiative. God makes the first step. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. And that's what Jesus has been doing in this ministry, in His ministry in this part of Matthew's gospel. He's been pouring out and people have been receiving, especially his disciples slash apostles. But it's always been that way with God. You could go all the way back to the beginning of this book, the first chapter of Genesis, and look at the creation account. I love what Eugene Peterson used to call it, the rhythms of creation. You remember reading in that first chapter that phrase, the evening and the morning was the first day, the evening and the morning was the second day, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning. There's a certain rhythm to that. It begins with the dark part of the day, the period of the day in which we rest. But God is at work. God is always at work. 
and then later we awaken to join God in the work in which he has already been engaged because God always takes the first step. We receive. That's where it begins. It's true time and again throughout this book, throughout the gospel accounts. It's true over and over again. Let me give you just one other example. Story that I love. Story of Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? If you've forgotten, just ask your kids. They'll tell you. They'll tell you Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, you remember. That's Zacchaeus. A diminutive, great sinner. When we read his story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, it's easy to become convinced that that's a story about this man and his search for Jesus. Luke 19, 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was. As you read the story, you get this sense that he's not just wanting to catch a physical glimpse of this itinerant preacher. No, it's, it's as though he wants to see into his heart, into his soul. Maybe Zacchaeus is wondering, are the things I've heard about this man true? Does he invite outcasts to the table? Does he forgive great sinners like me? Does he really throw parties for prodigals? Who is this man? And so as you read the story of Zacchaeus, you witness that it's as though he is saying in his mind, nothing will keep me from this encounter. Is it undignified for a Jewish man to run? Then I'll run. Is it undignified for any grown man to climb a tree? I'll climb a tree. I'll bruise my way up into the branches of the tree until finally I get the glimpse of him. And he did. And he was rewarded. Zacchaeus, guess who's coming to dinner? And Zacchaeus' life was changed. Salvation. So by that point in the story, you think, what a marvelous tale. The story of this man who searched for Jesus until he found him. Except, then you read the last couple of verses of the story. Do you know what they say? Jesus speaks. And he says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. It's almost as though a smile plays at the corners of Jesus' lips as he says, I got you, didn't I? You thought this story was a story about him searching for me. (laughs) Not so. This is a story about me searching for him. I deviated my journey coming to Jericho because I had two appointments with a blind man named Bartimaeus and with a wicked sinner named Zacchaeus, and I found them both. The divine initiative. God takes the first step. 
And because he does, we receive and we receive in abundance. Freely you have received, Jesus says. But as you well know, that's not all he says here in Matthew 10, verse 8. There's a second part to it. This is where the dawning realization of Calvin Miller as a child relates to our dawning realization that we are deeply, inextricably related to Jesus. Dawns on us, and we realize the demand that comes with that. Six words in the English, four words in the Greek. Freely you have received, freely give. There's the mandate. Now, what exactly is that talking about? I want to share with you two quotations from two very different men, but with a similar theme to what they're saying. The first is yesteryear's New Testament scholar who continues to shine a light on Scripture for us, William Barclay, who writing about this passage says, When Jesus told his disciples that they had freely received and must freely give, he was telling them what the teachers of his own people had been telling their students for a long time. Anyone who possesses a precious secret surely has a duty not to hold on to it, expecting to be paid for it, but willingly to pass it on. It is a privilege to share with others the riches God has given us. It is a privilege to share with others the riches God has given us. Freely give. The second quote. This from a lead singer in a rock band, Bono, from U2. I want to read you what Bono says about a, a time when he had come back to Dublin, Ireland from a tour. It was Christmas season of the year. He went to a Christmas Eve service, and it was there at that Christmas Eve service that that dawned on him, like Miller with his mother. It dawned on Bono. Now, he'll describe it in words that might be a, a bit different than what you or what I might use. But don't miss the message. Listen to what Bono says about that night. The idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw. A child, I just thought, wow. Just the poetry. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. That, from the lead singer in a rock band. Those words again toward the end. Love has to become an action or something concrete. There must be an incarnation. 
love must be made flesh. We have to do something about it. We must do something with it. Freely you have received, Jesus says. Now freely give. So exactly how do we give? What do we give? It really doesn't require any further reading than just reading the two chapters that precede these words. Matthew chapters 8 and 9 give us a model in action. Jesus, knee-deep in ministry. Jesus, sleeves rolled up, reaching into the hearts and the lives of people who hurt, who are yearning for God, who need a new life. He's giving them a new lease on life. He's giving them a new portrait of God. He's giving them a new way of understanding themselves. He's touching their physical as well as their spiritual lives. He is poor pouring himself out in service to people. That's how he's freely giving. And so when he says to us, freely give, the implied question is, are you willing to pour out your life in service to others? I am caught by the haunting question of Martin Luther King, Jr. He says, the most penetrating and urgent question we can ask is what are we doing for others? Or what about Martin Luther who said, love begins when we wish to serve? Or what about Timothy Keller? pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. These words are a bit strong, but don't lose their message and their strength. Listen to what Keller writes. Pastors often hear, I work my fingers to the bone in this church, and what thanks do I get? And then Keller says, is that the way it is? Your service was for thanks? Are you in your right mind? Servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. Freely you have received, now freely give. Friends, we're right on the cusp, right on the crest of a new year. Isn't it time for each of us to do an inventory? to ask ourselves, what is my service quotient? How willing am I to serve others? How willing am I to move beyond my own zone of comfort, my own zone of ease, and get engaged with the needs of those around me? Isn't the end of the year, the beginning of the new year, a good time to do that? Just recently, just within the last two weeks, I lost a dear friend. Many of us lost a dear friend. Larry Thomas. Larry Thomas recently retired ER physician. Those of you who know, knew Larry know that his heart palpitated with a passion to serve the people of Ethiopia. 
That's where his heart, his life was. His finances quickly followed. He had many different projects going. One in particular was Larry had a passion to restore sight to the people with cataracts who had lost their sight. Wasn't that long ago, a few months ago, that Larry talked to me about the church here at Loma Linda where I'm privileged to pastor. He referred to the capacity, those who can be seated in the church. Now, if we should sit shoulder to shoulder really tight, including the orchestra and choir on stage and so forth, we can probably fit about 2,000 in the church. You know what Larry said to me? He said, Randy, we have now given sight in Ethiopia to enough people to fill your sanctuary ten times over. Ten times over. Because somebody who felt that he had freely received was freely giving. Service. How's your service? We might all do well to pay attention to a man by the name of Vitol Pilecki. Vitol Pilecki, a Polish gentleman, and I call him a gentleman, made a decision, a thoughtful, informed decision, in September of 1941. Vitol Pilecki decided he had to do something about, about a gnawing fear in his heart. He was convinced that something dark, something evil was happening at a place named Auschwitz. So convinced was he that with the permission of his superiors in the resistance, Vitol Pilecki changed his name, got new papers, adopted a Jewish name, and was arrested by the Nazis and sent to Auschwitz. There in Auschwitz, he went to work. He had a mission. He was going to find out what was happening in this place. And he was going to communicate it to the Allies. He may have been the only prisoner to sneak into Auschwitz. Prisoner number 4859. And he went to work. Began to try to build the morale with the prisoners with whom he came in contact. Was strong, so he was put to work. Began to make plans, began to use couriers to, to try to sneak messages out of Auschwitz. He would later say, now it was real danger, not like danger we were facing on the outside. I said goodbye to everything that was my life, including a wife and two children. He spent approximately three years in Auschwitz, trying to find out, watching the horror of what was unfolding there. Later, he would finally become employed in the kitchen. And while there in the kitchen, he would overpower a guard and escape. 
It was after he escaped that he wrote down with clarity what was happening in Auschwitz, and he got it to the Allied command in London, who, upon reading what Pilecki wrote, said, he's exaggerating. That can't be true. I want you to listen. Listen to how a contemporary Jewish journal summarized Pilecki's life. Here's what it said. Once he set his mind to do the good, he never wavered, never stopped. He crossed the great human divide that separates knowing the right thing from doing the right thing. In his report, Pilecki said, there's always a difference between saying you will do something and actually doing it. A long time before, many years before, I had worked on myself in order to be able to fuse the two. The current Polish ambassador to the U.S. described Pilecki as a diamond among Poland's heroes. Larry Thomas and Witold Pilecki and Jesus force us to rethink our lives. And the one to whom we are related, the one with whom we are con connected, the one named Emmanuel, God with us, it's not just about what we know, but about what we do. What were Pilecki's words? Here they are again. There is always a difference between saying you will do something and actually doing it. A long time before, many years before, I had worked on myself in order to be able to fuse the two. What was it that Jesus said? What were those words that are reminiscent of the great exchange? Our lowest for his highest, our sin for his righteousness, our poverty for his riches, our hopelessness for his hope. What was it he said? He said, freely you have received. Now, freely give. Pilecki, it's time to fuse the two.